Hello and welcome to episode number 30 of the Quadcast podcast. When I first decided to go for it and record this show, truth be told, I had no idea what I was doing. I had to research not only the equipment, but as someone who is the furthest thing from a techie, I had to learn how to put everything together and make sure that all the plugs were in the right spots so as to actually capture the spoken word in my interviews. I assure you it was not easy to figure it out initially, but after watching a million YouTube videos, I think I finally have it down. So to have reached the big 3-0 is a milestone, and I must thank those who have been with me from the beginning. For those of you listening to the show for the first time, welcome, man, not for nothing, but where have you been? Just kidding. While this is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, it is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. Think of this as your 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. If you missed our last episode starring John Floresca, who works from a wheelchair as a cameraman in the television and motion picture industry, it and all of my shows can be found by logging on to my website, which is www.quadcast.org. John's inspirational story is one you will want to hear. I'm so happy he is back behind the camera working on such shows as Blue Bloods and Saturday Night Live. Congrats, my friend, and keep up the good work. And now let's get started on today's show. Aside from working as an intern with the New Jersey Nets in East Rutherford back in the 1990s and in Jersey City for a company called Sports Ticker in the early 2000s, I had not worked outside of my home. I did work alongside my dad for a number of years and have been contributing to moresportsnow.com as a writer and podcaster for the last dozen years, but that has been from my house. So when the first day of mine working at Kessler came about, I had a lot of things rolling around in my brain that gave me pause. Stuff like, could I actually work a full day? Would I be able to swipe my ID badge in the time clock computer? And yes, would I be able to get the zipper on my pants up and down, plus get my shirt tucked back in so that I looked presentable following visits to the facilities? Not exactly things everyone has to worry about, but they were at the forefront of my mind as I boarded the elevator headed for the second floor. Little did I know, when the doors would open, my outlook was about to change. That's because I was immediately greeted by a young man in a wheelchair who said, Good morning, how are you? I said, I'm fine, how about yourself? And his face lit up. Well, as much of it as I could see through the mask he had on. But he said, hey, you're that guy. I just listened to one of your podcasts. It was really good. In fact, I've told a number of the patients up here about them. Little did Jamil Williams know, but he had just put some much-needed wind in my sails. Jamil lives with an L2 SCI sustained in 2002 and works for the Kessler Foundation as an SCI research assistant and peer mentor. As the newly minted peer counseling coordinator, I know that matching folks with mentors has not been so easy, especially because of COVID and everything now is done virtually, either through Zoom or FaceTime. While those approaches are fine, nothing beats face-to-face -face conversations, and because Jamil works in the building, he is able to continue meaningful, socially distanced peer mentoring sessions with people coming in for outpatient therapy. And I am not just talking about one or two people. Jamil never says no when asked, and I believe that right now he is mentoring at least five people. 
SCI Peer Program Coordinator Jane Mitchell says this about Jamil Open quote, He is an inspiration to our patients. He is not defined by his disability, but uses it as a tool to provide a hopeful message to others. There is a world beyond your disability if you work hard and have faith, and Jamil is an example of that tenant, end quote. I couldn't be happier to have him as a colleague and, more importantly, as a friend. Following this commercial break, the Where There's a Jamil, There's a Way episode of the Quadcast rolls on, and that, my friends, is next. Did you know that one in every 50 Americans is living with some form of paralysis? The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation wants to change that. They are dedicated to discovering cures for spinal cord injury by funding innovative research and improving the quality of life and health for all people living with paralysis. Make a difference, change a life, and redefine what it means to live with paralysis by joining the Reeve Foundation today. For more information, visit ChristopherReeve.org. The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. Today's care, tomorrow's cure. And welcome back to the Quadcast. I am your host, John McAlevey. And without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome in none other than Jamil Williams. Jamil, hello, and thank you for coming on. Hello, John. Thanks for having me. Oh, you know, when I first had a chance to meet you, you'll hear in my intro um, just what that brief encounter did for my day. It was my first day at work. And uh, I don't know if you'll remember, but the elevator doors swung open and you were there. And uh, yeah, and and I was really apprehensive. It was my first day. I really didn't know what I was doing and whether I could get through a day. And um, you just brightened my day. You probably have no idea what it did for my confidence and whatnot, but uh, I want to thank thank you you for that. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, when when the elevators opened up, I recognized your face. Then when you saw it, I said, hey. I know this guy's voice. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the story that I relay. And uh, yeah. and so you'll hear it when we play this back. But, uh, you know, usually what I like to do, Jamil, with my shows and, and with my guests is, you know, because these spinal cord injuries that we've had do not in any way define who we are and who we were. So what I like to do is sort of find out a little bit about the person uh, outside of the injury. So why don't we begin at the beginning? Why don't you tell us where you grew up and what were some things that you liked to do as a young person? For sure. Well, I grew up in the South Ward, North, the Weak Wake section. And uh, yeah, I grew up on the Weak Wake section. I went to George Washington Carver Elementary School. And from there, I went to Weak Wake High School. And yeah, I was, uh, like I said, I was, I was born in Beth Israel, which is a, a few blocks away from my my neighborhood that I grew up on, uh, Shepherd Avenue. Sure. In the South Ward of North. And it was great, man. I had a great childhood. We used to uh, build go-karts from the ground up. I mean, we would go and take cardboard or plywood, anything we can get our hands on and try to build things from go-karts to clubhouses. You know, we, I enjoyed riding my, my, uh, my mountain bike. Mm-hmm. It'll be a, like, I have a, a large family and it'll be, imagine 10 to 12 kids about eight or nine years old, all on bicycles. And we're just 
taking a journey. That's just, great. Just in our neighborhood, yeah. going to other neighborhoods, just, just exploring. So you were you an know? entrepreneur from an early age, huh? Oh, yeah, it started early. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How about Jamil growing up? Did you have any uh, any role models? You said you had a big family. Did you have brothers or sisters oh, that yeah. you looked up to or any folks in the community? Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm the youngest of five. My mom's had five kids, four boys, one girl. My only sister, she was tough as nails. She was like a second mom, you know, and I always looked up to my older brothers. I have my oldest brother, his name is, is Marvin. We call him Kook. And and uh, the middle child, his name is Eric. And I grew up admiring these guys. You know, sure. I don't think I tell them enough. But my brother Eric, man, me and my brother Mark, I have a brother. His name is Mark, who's a year older than me. And we used to steal our brother's clothes. Well, not steal, because we always gave it back. Borrow, <laughs> right? Borrow. borrow in quotations. <laughs> yeah, we would borrow. So yes. our moms would dress us in the clothes she wanted us to wear to school. And our brother, he just had all the nicest clothes that you can imagine. Oh, yeah. So we wait for him to be gone. We go in his closet, put what we want to wear in our book bag, <laughs> and we would get right to the middle of the street, yeah. get, uh, halfway up the block. And started changing clothes. Mm-hmm. And as we're leaving school, you get back to the same house, <laughs> change back into where mama put us in. <laughs> yes. We used to call that the five finger discount, right? You used to just hey, there go you in. Go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yes, yes. But I always, I grew up admiring my, my big brothers. You know, those are the guys who, who taught me how to be a man, mm-hmm. you know. How about yeah, sports, uh, Jamil? Were you a sports uh, guy at all? I know a lot of the folks that yes. I've had on here, you know, from uh, from early on in recreation stuff to, you know, guys like Eric LeGrand and Mike Nichols I've had yeah. on that were, you know, sports sort of molded uh, who they were. So how about yourself? Yeah. Well, I didn't participate playing sports for school, you know, we've always played sports outside in our neighborhood Mm -hmm. from baseball, basketball, of course, and and football, you know, I, I had, I have talent, but I just was at a young age. I was just afraid of like rejection or or messing up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I like to, I don't really like attention like that. Yeah. So yeah. I would always play the background and the right. attention it goes to my brother, you know, my brother, Mark, he's the one who excelled in sports, you know, mm-hmm. all around any sport. He's just a, he's just a natural athlete. Anything yeah. he touches, he turns to gold and he becomes like the best at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we both like, we never had a big brother, little brother relationship. We always was neck and neck, and, and it was so much competition, yeah, <laughs> you know? Sure, so it was a like, tough act to follow, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I held my own. <laughs> sure you did. Yeah, you just didn't want to You just I, didn't yeah. want to overshadow anybody, right, Yeah, Jamel? I didn't want to... I didn't want to steal his light. You know, I let him have that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Let him be the athlete yeah. in the family. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yes. Well, now, Jamil, let's let's fast forward a little bit. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. I want to bring you back to, to July of 2002. Why yes. don't you take us through the circumstances of the day that changed the trajectory of the rest of your life? All right. Sure thing. So that day started off like any normal day. You know, I was working, I was working at this warehouse. I was a selector at a warehouse called AFI in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And uh, the day, the day of my injury, my boss called me in. I was working from uh, say 6 p.m. to uh, about 9 to 10 a.m. And so as I was getting ready to finish my shift, about an hour left in it, boss calls me in the office. 
sits me down. He tells me, you know, unfortunately, we have to terminate you. And I'm saying, you know, terminate me? Wow, I'm like one of your best workers here. I come in, I do my job, I don't give nobody problems. He said, no, you do great work. It's just, you know, we found out on your application that uh, it looks like you may have uh, lied. So I said, well, how come? Yeah, he said, so, you know, on the application, they asked you if you had a felony arrest, and I didn't, so I put no. Now, the arrest that I had was, at the time, equivalent to a jaywalking ticket. Yeah, You know, so when I explained this to him, he said, okay, go get the report, bring it back to me, you got your job back. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what I did. I go get the report, I waited for my big brother, Eric, to get off work. He was driving at the time, so... We go downtown North, we get the police report, we bring it back to the boss. He looks at it, not even two seconds into reading it, he starts to tear it up and said, this is BS. You got your job back. I'm going to go in and work now. So I look at him, I said, well, I have my good clothes on now. I'll come back and I'll start the following shift. Sure. So we leave there. We go to the uh, my old neighborhood on Shepherd Avenue in North, down in the Week Week section. Mm-hmm. And... You know, my big brother, he pulls down in the middle of the street and he gets out, starts talking to his friends and I go to the corner store. So I tell him I'll be right back and just go grab a water, some snacks, and then, you know, we can head home. Got to get snacks. Need snacks. Got to get snacks, you know. So (laughs) here it is. I just turned 19, not even a full week prior Mm -hmm. to this day. Like this is the 8th of July. And my birthday was on the 2nd of July. So I just turned 19. Me and my brothers, we had planned to take a road trip, you know, uh, uh, in the next week so we can go down down south to North Carolina where where my family originates from to see our other half of the family. Yeah. So I go into the store. As I'm coming out the store, I'm running across the street. And as I'm crossing the street, there's a guy over to the right. And there's a car that I'm trying to avoid getting hit by. Right. And so I'm running across the I'm in an intersection. That car I was trying to avoid getting hit by starts shooting oh, at geez. the guy across the street. And now I'm in the middle of it. And mind you, it's about 1130 in the morning. So in, in July, of course. So I'm thinking, who's shooting fireworks this early? Oh, God. Not even realizing until I hear the uh, lasting echo of a firearm and when I noticed that and start seeing like sparks flying everywhere, I go to like brace myself and the the way I went to like brace my, my head and turn slightly to the left or to the right, the doctor said that that's what really saved everything. Mm. Had I turned the opposite way, it would have went bad for me. It would have been, been worse. So you got so caught in the crossfire? Is that what I happened, Jamil? Yes, sir. I got caught in the crossfire oh, and... Gosh. I'm lying there on the ground, and as I said, I'm like a few blocks away from Beth Israel, but it's not a, a trauma uh, hospital, so I have to lie on that ground and wait for the ambulance from University Hospital in Newark to come and get me. And let me ask so, you something: Did you know yes. immediately? Was it was it immediate at that? You, you yeah, knew, yeah, you knew. Yeah, yeah. I knew. I knew it was something because, like, I still had feeling. I never lost the feeling. I was just on the ground, like kind of squirming around trying to get up because mm-hmm. when I looked down, I didn't see any blood. So I'm saying, well, wow, what what hit me? You know, yeah. something knocked the air out of me and, sure. and put, me on my, put me on the ground. But as I was looking down at my chest to see any blood or anything, I, I didn't see anything because the bullet 
is still to this present day underneath my right chest. So it never exited. Wow. You know, never exited. And it's pretty much encased in like uh, a bunch of scar tissue. The oh, doctor says gosh. that's that's almost impenetrable. But well, Jamil, you know, I'm not. Let's yeah. let's get back to that. But what happened to yeah. the car and, and the guy that right. was getting shot? Did did all? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that did they all leave? Did they they did they speed yeah, away? So while I was on the ground, you know, I looked over and the guy that was getting shot at, I see him like running away. And so I tried to get up to like kind of, you know, run, run away with them or to get out the way of, you know, danger. Yeah, sure. But I couldn't move. So uh. when I'm sitting there and I'm I'm like squirming, I couldn't move my legs. I felt everything. I just could not move. Mm. So I called for my brother who was uh, who was down the street for him to come down to me. I told him, you know, I, I kind of screamed out that I was hit. He came down to me and. You know, it was just telling me to, like, coaching me through, like, calm down, stop moving so much. We don't know what's going on, where it is. It didn't exit you, so we don't want the bullet to kind of bounce around within you and cause more damage. So they kind of calmed me down. Yes. Ambulance got there, and, yeah, we, we went on to the to the, uh, to the hospital, and to what's, the university. Now you're at University Hospital, and what? What yeah. did the doctors tell you initially? And, you know, what was wow. going through your mind? I mean, good grief. Here you are. Yeah. You just had some bad news about getting fired, but then you had right. good news because you got your job back yeah. and yeah. now you're you're <laughs> in a bad way, in a terrible way. Oh, tell me man. what's going through your mind. Just, just a roller coaster of emotions. So when I got to the emergency room, I was just complaining about my left leg hurting. It just felt like when they were pushing me in on a gurney, it felt like my left leg was being dragged mm. on the side of the gurney. I kept asking, like, is, like, can y'all lift my leg on it? And they're telling me, your leg is right in front of you. I'm like, well, why does that hurt out of everything? Yeah. Now, the doctor, well, what they did was they placed me in a, um, they placed me in a coma because of, I had so much swelling internally. Mm. So I had to, I had to sit in a coma for about two days. Wow. And when I, when I came to, I remember seeing my sister there and I just had all these tubes in me and I came to, and I'm just like, where is my mother? Yeah. I need mama. <laughs> you know? Yeah, of course. And, and my sister, she, she seen me. She was the first one to see me come out oh. of the coma and she went to go say, he up, everybody, he up, he up. <laughs> get in here. He's up. <laughs> yep. Get in here. He's snatching all the tubes out of him. He going crazy. Oh. And when I seen my mom, you know, I kind of just calmed down, and that one bullet, it 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 tore through so much. Like it affected, it, it hit my lung. You know, just just a bunch of different things internally that that one bullet wow. did so much damage with. And so, as I said, so I'm six six. At that time, I was six four. I grew two inches oh, while I was in the hospital, laid up. Wow, so I was six four. I was about 215, 220 pounds. And, you know, staying in that hospital bed, I I was in university from the time I got shot, which is the 8th, to August 1st when I was discharged from there. Wow. But from the 8th to the 1st, I left that bed. I barely sat up in that bed. Yeah. I wasn't eating any solid foods. I had a... a a lot of different surgeries. You know, this this one surgery I remember having, 
I remember them bringing me back to my room from the surgery and the doctors all rushing in my room said, we got to get him back. We got to get him back. Yeah. So what's going on, doc? What's, what's all of the, you know, the rush going on? Well, we looked at your x-ray and your appendix is twisted and we have to go in there and unravel it uh, or it, it will burst. So I just came from surgery having staples put in my stomach. Mm. Now I have to go back, have those staples removed, have them go back inside my stomach, untangle my uh, 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 you know, untangle yeah. That. Yeah. yeah, you know, appendix. And, you know, so by the time I got back from that surgery, now what was just stapled, they couldn't restaple it. They had to leave it open oh. and pack it with gauze. And that that wound had to close on its own. So oh, gosh. You talking about July. I don't think that, that wound fully closed until I was man, I was discharged. I would say maybe late November, early December oh, of two thousand and two. That is that it finally closed. So from me being uh, discharged from University Hospital, August 1st, 2002, coming to Kessler and West Orange. And that was the very first time I got in a wheelchair when I came to Kessler. Oh, my gosh. That's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, you, know you mentioned that you have such a huge family. I, yeah. I would assume that, you know, once you're out of the coma and you're having yes. these surgeries, then um, how important was having the support of that big family there? Because I can tell you, I only have one sister, oh, but I have yeah. great parents and I have some of the world's greatest friends that never left me behind. And if it weren't right. for, for all of that, then then I would not have been, you know, as well adjusted to the awful thing that had happened to me as I was. So yeah. tell me, how important was that for you in your the beginning of your recovery? Oh man, my tribe, my tribe is awesome. You know, my family, they're very supportive. They, they didn't miss a beat. You know, anything I needed from them, they were there. They were there from the, the beginning of visitation time to, to closing. You know, even when I was uh, transferred to Kessler, every moment I wake, I, it wasn't a time that went by that I felt like I was in this by myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and it just that that's what gave me the strength. You know, I know a lot of times I sit with my with my family and, you know, we speak on on these things and they tell me, man, you know, you're strong. Mill. I don't know if I would have been able to do it if, if that happened to me. But I'm always telling my like, look, you never know what you can do until it happens to you. Mm -hmm. You know, if 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 someone would have told me when I was 15 years old. Like, listen, kid, when you turn 19, this is what's going to happen. You know, how 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 do you prepare yourself for anything? You yeah. just, what it is, you have to be a strong-minded individual to begin with, mm -hmm. you know? Well, and, it was that strong upbringing that you had. And, yes. And, you know, Jamil, it's two words that I that I speak about all the time, and I tweet it whenever I see mm -hmm. things. And, and it's so true, I feel, that the human spirit is what I call it. And it's yes. that it's that inner core that you have that just says, you know, gosh darn it, I had something horrible happen to me, but I'm I'm gonna just push through as hard as it is, whether yeah. I'm in a wheelchair, whether I'm walking, or whether you know whatever I have left, I'm mm -hmm. gonna just summon something deep inside of me, and I I believe it's the human spirit, and it can carry us places we really never thought we could go. Most definitely, 
You're you know? absolutely right, John. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, now I, I know you've mentioned uh, Kessler a number of times. Tell us, first mm-hmm. of all, had you ever heard of Kessler before the, before <laughs> you had your, your accident, before you were shot? And, no. um, and if not, tell us about your, mm-hmm. uh, when you first get there and what you find when you're there. Okay. Well, I never heard of Kessler prior to my injury. That's one. Never heard of it. And um, when I got here, the first day I got here, so they allowed me to, you know, to rest. And I remember my uh, my nurse's aide, George, he still works here. Mm. I tell him every time I pass him, I pass by him. If I'm with someone, I always express to them, that's George right there. That was my very first aide. And he's the best. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's the one who, who showed me how to how to uh, get in this wheelchair and to use it. Yeah. So when I got here, August 1st, you know, I was uh, pretty much uh, paperwork and, and, you know, getting situated in my room. So the following day, the second, George comes in my room. He tells me, look, I'm going to put you in your chair. I'm going to push you to therapy. But pay attention to your surroundings because I'm not coming back to get you. It's up to you to find your way back to your room. Some tough love and from Mr. George. I looked at, yeah, I looked at George and I said. I thought I we were friends. Yeah, no, I never, I tell myself, I've never even been in a wheelchair. This is my first time in a wheelchair. Mm. And I was just in the hospital for a whole month, you might as well say, and never got out of bed. I said, now you want me to find my way back? And so I kind of got annoyed with him. (laughs) (laughs) Sure you did. He's hanging, you letting you hang out there. Yeah, you know, he pressed that button on me because like, all right, this is an unfamiliar place. Mm -hmm. Everything's new to me. For, you know, to start with, with me being to dealing with the spinal cord injury to not even knowing right. exactly what that entails. Mm-hmm. So I get he puts me to therapy. Yep. I get there. What's the and, mindset? You get to George uh, brings you down. He's your he's your friend. He has mm-hmm. you in the chair. He wheels you down to, to therapy. What's that mindset right. that first day when you get into OT and PT? Because it is yeah. no joke for those people out there that, you know, right. think, oh, PT, we're going to go to PT. They're going to do this and that. When, once you've had a spinal cord injury, OT and PT are completely different it's than like different. if you're rehabbing knee surgery or something like yes, that. Yes, sir. Absolutely. You know, and they did not take it easy on me. And I'm grateful for that because I always say, had I had a pushover therapist starting out, who knows, you know, my, my level of motivation. Who knows where I would be, you know, at this point. So when I get to therapy, I'm nervous. I don't know what to expect. Mind you, I haven't done therapy in the hospital that I just left from. Right. Never even got out of bed. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they're about to try to do to me. Mm. So I get in there, everybody introduces themselves. So I get over, I start, you know, the, they, they, you know, do the paperwork process. And then they get you on the mat and start trying to stretch you, see where, you know, where where you are with your disability, what what you can and can't do. So my my stomach is still wide open at this time. I'm so sore and just in so much pain that the slightest touch hurts me. So they're like, okay, we're gonna transfer you onto the mat. And I was just like, why can't you sit in my chair? <laughs> why, yeah. why you can't just tell me, you know, what to do from here? Yeah, I'm comfortable but, right here. Can't you see? Yeah, I'm comfortable. But that's just, that's life. You can take that lesson right there and apply it to anything in life. Yes. 
nothing worth having is going to come with comfort. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to get out your comfort level in order to obtain goals that you set for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I learned that I used to be so impatient. I wanted things right away. And I had an older cousin, uh, Alex, he, he, he came to visit me and he would always tell me, cause patience is a virtue. And I just used to look at him like, I don't want to hear none of that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you sound like a 90-year-old man, right? You know, yeah, I don't want to hear none of that. Yeah. But it took for him to continuously tell me that every time. That was just like his closing line. Every time he would leave, remember, cuz, practice patience. Mm-hmm. Patience is a virtue. And so I said, what is this guy keep telling me this for? Like, mm-hmm. I am patient. Yeah. But then I started to kind of step back from myself and and... and just see things for what it is, you know, right. like, all right, this is what's going on with you now. Just roll with the punches. That's it. I bet any, you heard any, all the cliches. Uh, I heard them all, right? Yeah. Slow and steady wins the race, right? <laughs> and and Rome wasn't built in a day. Yeah. You know, you hear all of those things. And it's one yeah. thing for, you know, some able-bodied person to say all those things. But, you yeah. know, when you're, when you're in it and it's your life that has completely changed, you know, you want to snap yeah. your fingers and say, let's go. I want to get back to... To, to where mm-hmm. I was, but, uh, so now you're in oh, yeah. PT and OT and you're, you're starting to feel a little bit better. The, the, the crew is working. You're really hard up there. Um, yes. when, yes. when you're there for a while, do you start thinking like, okay, um, what am I going to do now with the rest of my life? Do you start to kind of plan out what, what the next chapter is going to look like when you're thinking about maybe they're talking about getting uh, you discharged? Because, you know, once you're in there, the, the insurance companies can't wait to get you out. I mean, oh, I probably can't wait. every week, every Friday, it's like, you're out, Jamil, you're going. Because I remember yeah. they did that to me too. So tell me what the, the process is starting to look like in, in between your ears at that point, what you're thinking about doing with the rest of your life. Right. So at that point, it's like I had nothing but time on my hands to sit there and kind of, you know, put a master plan together. You know, OK, this is where this is where we're at right now. You know, we're, we're paralyzed we're in a wheelchair. We can't go back to our old job and do any manual labor. Now, you know, we got to use that that most powerful muscle in our body, use that brain. Mm-hmm. So OK. So but a lot of things, you know. I sat there, John, and I and I thought like, okay, I think I want to go into real estate when I leave here. You know, I always loved homes. Okay, you know, just me and my mom as kids used to drive us around just looking at big, pretty homes. Like, you know, one day we're gonna have one of those, y'all. We're gonna we going you know have a lot of land and you can build your house and and so I just always was fascinated with just just home the home market. Sure, and so. When I got discharged, still 19, I made a few little, you know, networking going on while I was here. I was speaking to a few guys who who had uh, rental properties, and I'm just picking their brains. So I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. When I leave here, I'm going to purchase a home, a rental property, and that's going to be able to pay off the home that I purchased and help my mom. You yeah. know, that was my main thing. It's just helping mama. Yes. All of us. That's that's our, 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 our priority that we focus on. Yes. She released us and took care of us, sacrificed everything she did. So it's only right for us to return that to her. Payback. You know, that's right. The big payback. Payback. Yep. And I'll tell you this one story. So 
I kind of had a house locked down when I got discharged, mm. right? So it was a three-family home. One of the guys who were who were um, outpatient therapy aide, yeah, up on it because he had a lot of homes himself. And I used to always say, "Well, won't you just let me get one of your houses that has <laughs> tenants already? Make it easy for me, golly!" Right. So he said, "Nope, you got to learn it. I want you to learn from okay. the ground up. That okay. way, you'll be prepared for the." you know, future endeavors. Yes. And I respected that because he could have just easily say, okay, here, I have three uh, tenants in this home. You just start taking over. And I would have never learned from that. It has just been handed to me. Yes. So what happens is he he puts me in touch with a friend of his who was looking to sell a home. At this time, he wanted $100,000 for this home. So, okay, that's sweet. Mm-hmm. Let me go ahead, get in touch with my, my big brothers and my uncle. We're going to go by, take a look at the house, and we'll go from there. So we get to the house. It's me, my two older brothers, and my uncle. And uh, we we uh, we sat there. The guy comes in the, in the yard, and he goes to introduce himself to everybody. And he goes to shake my older brother's hand, thinking he was me. Uh-huh. He's a Mill, right? And they all look out and laugh and say, no, nah, that's Jamil right there. So they point at me, and I imagine this. Young kid in the wheelchair, no belly, any hair on his face. <laughs> and, and he's here to purchase your home, you know, that you're looking to sell. That is so, he's so like, oh. funny. And I, I saw the the way his eyes lit up when he seen that I was a kid. Yeah. He's like, oh, oh okay. Y'all want to come on there? We take a look. So, yeah. So, we go in and we all got our poker face on. I say, yeah. y'all, y'all see anything that's nice, don't let it show. Right. We're just going to act like. It's whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we get out, and I tell him, I said, okay, you know, everything looks looks decent. I'll give you a call in a couple of days, and maybe we can draw up the contracts and go from there. So okay. So we get to that point. This man raises the price about 20, 20 grand on me. Oh, no, because you're a kid. I, wet behind the ears, he figures. Yeah. He's seen his oh. dollar signs popped in his head when he saw who who Jamil was. Oh, that he talked to. Now, he's speaking to me over the phone, how deep my voice is. You can't tell how old I was. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Oh, he, no. see me, he said, oh, I got one on the line. I'm going to take him for everything. Oh, I and thought I you were going to say, I thought you were going to say yeah. he lowered the price 20 grand because he saw that oh. you were in a wheelchair and he was going to, you know, tr- yeah. try and, and help help a friend out in need, you know? Yeah, that would have been beautiful. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that would that would have been what you and I would have done. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But he did, and uh, I came back to therapy, and I told the guy, and he was, oh, he was so upset. He said, mm-hmm. "I don't believe he would do that." I explained to him what the situation was. You would think that he would look out, or to at least, you know, give you some kind of common courtesy, like yeah. nothing. But that kind of deterred me. I'm not going to lie. As a young man, I was looking at it like, you know what? I'm just going to find another way. Like, so real estate is out. At that at that time, real yeah. estate for me, Left you know. Left a bad taste it, in your mouth. It did, you mm-hmm. know. And for, for everything else, because everything else that was going on, I felt like, okay, this is going to be that, that positive edge and energy that I need mm-hmm. to just boost me through through my process that I'm going through, you know right. what I mean? Just kind of keep the fact that I'm dealing with a spinal cord injury and not knowing yeah. anything, any, anything that's certain for the future. Sure. You know? So how did the idea of, of 
working for Kess- the Kessler Foundation. Uh, when did that yeah. first come up, and and uh, right. how did uh, how did it go when you first got there? Uh, so with the foundation, right? So I, as I said, I was coming back and forth to Kessler ever since 2002 for outpatient therapy, and um, it just felt like a second home to me. Coming mm. from the South Ward of North, you know, that's kind of like you know people kind of look down on that on that area because it's you know, a lot of drugs and crime, but that's that's like any place in America, you know? It's really the community that they should embrace, you yeah. know, and not just look at it from what you hear in the media, mm-hmm. you know? So, as I said, when I came up here, this was like, I used to call it Candyland. I said, this is just sweet up here, <laughs> you know? Everybody speaks to you. Nobody is like got a mean mug on their face walking past. You don't have to have your defenses up. Mm-hmm. It just felt different. Yeah. And I fell in love with that. You know, yeah. I just every free time I had, I wanted to come here. Even if I didn't have therapy, I just wanted to come because the people were that much pleasant. Mm-hmm. And um, I started inquiring about a job for the rehab, for not for the uh, rehab as far as therapy, but just for that uh, hospital setting. And I mean, I was putting in applications left and right for years, but I didn't have any experience when it came to like customer service or things like that. Because the last job that I was doing, it involved me doing physical labor, right? Uh, you know, manual labor. So what I did was I would go to the HR as I was coming out of therapy. So, yeah, I've been passing out applications, you know, filling out applications here for years. I haven't heard anything. You know, I just wanted to introduce myself. And so by me doing that, that left a mark on them, a positive mark, because not even a week later, I get a phone call from Kessler's HR asking me if I'm still interested in the job. Bingo. And so I said, wow. I said, "Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very much still interested. So they go, well, we can do an over phone interview now. Now, mind you, John. I didn't even turn in a new application. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I just went to them and, you know, expressed that I have been turning these applications and haven't heard anything. Right. And one lady, she, she expressed to me, well, you know, if you don't have customer service uh, experience, you know, kind of start taking jobs to, to, to build that experience. So that's what I did. I would go to my barber shop. Hey, let me, let me answer these phones and collect up, uh, appointments for you guys so I can build my resume up. So that's what I did. I started going, getting a little in and out, in, you know, in and out jobs like that, built it up, came back. And before I could even turn in the application <laughs> with my new resume, they would, tur- they would call me doing an over-the-phone interview. And I did so well awesome. that they asked me to come in the following week and do a second uh, follow-up interview. Mm-hmm. This is uh, 2013 when I started working for, for the Kessler as a switchboard operator in the main lobby that started me off part-time mm-hmm. and I eventually moved up to full-time. I got the lower lobby. I had my own lobby that I was, you know, manning the front desk floor. And I did that for about a year and a half. And I was so great at it that I kind of got jaded with it because I knew all the extensions for every department on campus. <laughs> so it's just like, I was like, okay, I think I kind of hit the ceiling with this, you yeah. know, Department or this this position. Yeah, been there, and done that. Like, I can I yeah, can move on to some bigger things now. I, right. I feel like you know I need more responsibility. I feel like I can 
I have more to give mm-hmm. than to just sit here and be the, you know, the first face that greets people and, and answers phones and, sure. and, and transfers and all that. And it was great. Don't get me wrong. Yes. I love that job. I, I met a lot of great people doing that job. And uh, as I said, I did that for about a year and a half. And that was your and foot in the door. That was that was, that was foot the in the foot door. in the door. Yeah. And so we're and John, so did you yeah. did you start looking around for for other openings or did somebody say, so, hey, listen, Jamil? Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So what happens was now this is the kicker. When okay. I first got that position, I assumed that it would be OK. I'm working Monday through Friday and every other weekend they want me to come in and work that. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, sir. You got that wrong, sir. <laughs> and you only have week every other weekend that you work. So oh, I was only working on schedule for four days out of a month. Oh, boy. And I'm like, what is this going to do? Like, I can't do anything with that. But I say, you know what? Let me take this and go forward with it. Don't rock the I'm boat. Gonna, yeah, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm going to take this blessing for what it is. At least I have my foot in the door and I can move forward from there, right? Mm-hmm. I did a year and a half on the uh, switchboard. I then was uh, transferred to the uh, to do outpatient uh, OA work, office administration work, and I was doing uh, I was doing uh, billing, medical coding, and billing mm-hmm. as far as uh, uh, you know what my my job title was was to do. I, you know, I was a uh, outpatient administrator, but I was doing medical billing and coding as well. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And prior to this, prior to me even working for Kessler, I was already familiar with the foundation because I was doing studies. So when I would do these studies with the foundation, that introduced me to another side of Kessler that I didn't know anything about. And I immediately fell in love with everything that they were doing there because the the studies that I would do was pertaining to spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. And I would see how passionate they were and all the, the new cutting edge resources and information that they had at their fingertips. And I said, you know what? That'll be a great position for me to get over there and work for the foundation sure. because it'll be, you know, killing two birds, one stone. I'll be employed and then I'll be learning about my disability all in one thing. Sure. So fast so, forward to today and, yeah. and tell us, first oh. of all, what your position yeah. is and what, what your uh, most pressing mm-hmm. uh, responsibilities are. Right. So as of uh, August 24th, 2020, I became a member of the foundation, came here to do spinal cord injury research. I'm a spinal cord injury research assistant. I do peer-to-peer mentoring as well. and I want to say that's like the best part for me because I'm such a people person that when I have my my peer-to-peer mentoring sessions, that that's everything to me. You know, I always said that when I find what I'm passionate about, I'm just going to go for that wholeheartedly. And this is it. You know, it, it, people go a whole life without finding their passion or, or something that you know, their purpose. Mm-hmm. I really feel like God has used me, you know, as a, as a vessel to kind of show people that, look, yes. you can be, you can be down and, and, and out. Things can be at the worst for you, but you can 
get through things, mm-hmm. you know, just have to be a strong minded person and have a great support team around you. Sure. Now, and, is that is that the mindset you mentioned as a uh, you're a peer mentor? Um, and that's yeah. something that I talk about in in my intro, myself being the the newly minted peer counseling coordinator. Um, yes. I have to I have to find folks that that can match with people. What I do is I go door to door when people are are inpatients. They've been recently injured. I introduce mm-hmm. myself and I ask them if they would be interested in speaking to somebody who's sort of been in their shoes, but has been out in the community for a couple of years now. Because, you know, it's right. one thing, as we've talked about, to, to speak to somebody who's able-bodied and they can tell you that, you know, A, B, and C, but, you know, they don't really know what we're going through. So uh, the sure. program that Kessler, you know, allows is that um, a newly injured person could speak to somebody who's been in the community for a while, and that's where you come in. What is the mindset yeah. when when myself or when when Jane Mitchell or Jean Zanka, um, you know, gives you the name of somebody and you, you and they tell you that, you know, this person is sort of having a tough time and and they would want to uh, sit down and chat with you. What is the frame of mind when you go in for that initial visit to talk to somebody? My frame of mind when I go into it is just. You know, I come from a, a a point of compassion, you know. It's just, all right, I know what this person is going through. You know, they have able-bodied people telling them pretty much how life's going to be in their shoes. But it's like, you can't relate to that. Like, it, it's just, at least if they hear it coming from me, knowing that I'm still living this this life with my spinal cord injury. I've been there. I have 19 years of experience. So when I have these, it's, it's not even really, like I, I hate to even put down as a peer-to-peer mentoring. More or less, it's just me having a conversation with somebody and just giving them an expression of the life that I've been living. Yeah, You know, the things that I've learned along the way that worked for me and hopefully that can work for them as well but to to see someone to talk with someone that that's going through the same thing that you're entering into that's a huge step mm-hmm. you know that that really gives people hope it does it does and and what is that you know that feeling when when you're finished and and you uh, and you leave that person and and you know, because you can mm-hmm. see, you know, a different look on their face, make, like maybe a smile right. or they say, hey, listen, I'd really like to to meet again. Because oftentimes mm-hmm. you, you might have that initial session and the person will say, you know what, thanks, but this is not for me. You know, I, I don't think right. I want to have a second session. But when when that mentee says, hey, you know, maybe we could, I'll be back for therapy on Thursday. Maybe we could, you know, we could chit chat again. I mean, that must make right. you feel like, hey, I'm making a difference, and and it puts a oh, yeah. a little a little pep in your step. Absolutely, that's a wonderful feeling because to be able to to help someone to kind of bring them out of that that dark space, you know, because it's as I say all the time, it's a a level of uncertainty. You don't know what to expect. Yeah, you know, it's not like a lot of people grew up around people with this with this disability and and know what what to look for and what not to do you know so it's like when when they come around and they see someone in the wheelchair have a spinal cord injury always 
upbeat. I mean, I have my downtown, so don't get me wrong. Sure, it's not all beach balls part, and, and sunshine, yeah, right? No, absolutely. Oh man! But for the for the most part, I've learned that there's always someone watching, even when you can't see who it is. People are always watching, and you affect people without you even knowing. Yeah. So, this is just me regular you know I'm, I'm always like this this isn't just for the job like you can see me out when i'm on vacation somewhere and come over and have conversations with me and i'm this same energy mm-hmm. you know nothing changes and i think the fact that people can pick up on that on, on, on you know on that energy absolutely Absolutely. You know? Two last two questions for me. First of yes. all, on a personal note, what mm-hmm. what is Jamil? What are you working on now as far as therapy wise? I know um, yeah. you you never stop, and and we oh, can no. never stop because <laughs> you know yeah. move it or lose it. So tell me what you're working on right. uh, physically, and then um, and then the last yes. one for me is always the one I end up with is um, mm-hmm. if, if I could snap my fingers right now and and you would be completely able bodied once again, what is the wow. first thing that you would do that comes to mind? So just those last two. Oh man, so what I'm working on in therapy now, I um, I'll just get back into my next stint in therapy in the middle of uh, this month, November, and pretty much just core strengthening. You know, I've always got into therapy trying to just just go in and work on other things. But now I have to build this foundation. I have to strengthen my core because if I, if I don't have a strong foundation and I'm able to get up, it's useless. Yeah. If I can't carry, you know, if my foundation isn't strong enough to carry the rest of the house, you may not, you may, may as well not even have that house. So <laughs> I'm focused on my foundation, getting everything strong and sturdy. So that when I do stand up, I'm up strong mm-hmm. and I'm able to stay up yeah. for as long as I can possibly go. Mm-hmm. Man, you messed me up with this one. So what would I do if you made to snap your fingers and I'm able? Yeah. What's the, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'll tell you for me is I would get on my running shoes and get, get, yeah. get my earbuds and go out for a long ride and uh, go out oh, for yeah. a long run. Um, but yes. I've heard other ones. I've heard, you know, Eric Legrand, the great Eric Legrand, I tell you, yeah. his was, he's, uh, he said, I would throw up the, throw open the front door and run outside butt naked and not worry about <laughs> anybody seeing me. I had another, <laughs> another guy tell me he would check into a hotel room and he would sleep in the bed and not have to have somebody roll him and he would take a shower. Mm. He would take 10 showers. He would stand in front of the, of the, of the toilet and, and just do his business and not have to worry about not emptying right. his bladder or his bowel program or any of that stuff. So, so whatever's there, it's all on the table for you. It's a personal thing. Man, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of chalk it up to things, you know, I'm going to do half to half. So my first thing, I would love to run up to my mother Grab, give her a biggest hug and lift her off her feet. You know, <laughs> lift her off her feet and, and, and just swing her around like a child. You know, that would be the first thing I would do is run up to my mom, grab her, lift her off her feet, and just give her the biggest hug. And the second thing, I would, like you said, put them earbuds in, and I'm getting on a mountain bike. And I'm just gonna pedal until I can't pedal anymore. Until <laughs> <laughs> your Everybody feet fall off, right? Me, until my feet fall. Anybody that knows me knows I love riding a bike. You okay. know, and that's that's it. That's Hug it. mama, 
and, and ride that bike. Oh gosh. Well, those are two great <laughs> things. And, and I can see it in the future. Both of yeah. those things are going to happen. I can tell oh, yeah. you're determined to make both of those happen. That's right. Speaking Absolutely. into existence. That's right. That's right. Well, Jamil Williams, I can't thank you enough, not only for all you do for me in the peer mentorship program. I know I speak uh, for Jane Mitchell also um, when you do the lunch and learn for her and and all the other stuff that you do you know it's always funny we'll say i'll say jane you know i have a new person that maybe wh- wh- what do you think let's call jamil let's call jamil <laughs> so so i always give a title to to my episodes of the of the quadcast and today's is where there's jamil there's a way okay <laughs> because like you are always there you're the constant and you never say no um, yeah. And you didn't say no to me when I asked you to come on today. And I, I appreciate that more than you know. Sure. And sure. Um, I value your friendship. I admire all that yeah. you do. And I look forward to uh, continuing working with you in the future. Absolutely. I appreciate you, John. Thank you for having me on once again. You know, the reason I began this podcast was to be able to tell inspirational stories about people just like Jamil Williams. Thank you for all you do for the peer mentoring program and keep working towards that day when you will sweep your mom off her feet and give her that big hug. I'd like to give a special shout out to Kelly Lamb, development manager at the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, who will run for Team Reeve in Sunday's TCS New York City Marathon. Kelly joined me here on the quadcast to chronicle how she runs not only to raise money for her fiancé, John David, but to help find a cure for spinal cord injury. Best of luck, Kelly. Have a great race, my friend. Thanks, as always, to Chris Parapesco from Harbor Picture Company for mixing this show. Until we meet again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care about no wheelchair. I got so much left to do.